Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Vox Media is looking for a principal designer for their platform group, and you can work out of their NYC or DC offices as well as remotely. Also starting this month, we've included job postings from Indeed.com for full-time positions across a number of different titles. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp just recently improved their automation features so you can do cool things like drip email campaigns, connect with shopping cart softwares, and create custom workflows to do all kinds of cool stuff. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code SPREADLOVE and save 10% off your purchase. Now for this week's interview, I talked with Erica Joy, a build and release engineer for Slack. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, my name is Erica Joy, or Erica Joy Baker. Online, I'm known as Erica Joy, and I am a senior engineer doing build and release engineering at Slack. So I want to talk about the work that you're doing at Slack. I actually interviewed one of your coworkers recently, um, Dio. Dio's great. I love him. Yeah, he, that was a great interview. I talked to him recently, but tell me kind of what you do as far as uh, engineering work at Slack. So Slack has several client apps. We aim to be on every device that anyone can be on. So we have apps on Android, iOS, Mac OS, Windows, Windows Phone. And my job is to basically make those apps exist. Now, I don't write the apps. We have different engineering teams uh, that write those apps. And then I take their code and turn it into apps and send it out to the world. But I don't actually like turn it into apps myself. I write code that turns it into apps. Okay. Yeah. What languages are you using when you're doing that? Right now, it's a lot of bash scripting, but when I get into the more fancy stuff, I hope to be using a lot of Python. Right now, I'm just getting the infrastructure up and running. There was an, a, a real build and release process at Slack before I got there, so right now, I'm just getting that together and like figuring out what it's going to look like, and then once everything, you know, the nuts and bolts are in place, then I'll go ahead and do the fancy stuff with Python. Kind of walk me through what a typical day is like working at Slack. I get the impression that Slack is a really fun and laid back place to work. But what's a typical day like for you? Tell me. Well, (laughs) typical days. It depends on the day of the week. I usually get in around 10-ish. I grab something to drink, usually water. Lately, it's been Theraflu and emergency because I've been sick, but I'm over that finally. Thank goodness. I get to my desk. I hop on Slack. 
obviously, <laughs> see what's going on in Slack world, see if there's anything that needs my attention. And then I start doing my job for a while. Usually lunch is around 1130, depending on what day of the week it is. We'll have lunch in house, like it'll be catered lunch, or we'll end up going across the street to the food trucks. Or we'll just, you're basically, it's up to you where you want to get lunch, except for on Mondays. Fridays, we have breakfast. So that is what I do on Fridays. I eat breakfast, which I'm really excited about. Breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. I think every <laughs> meal should be breakfast. And yeah, so after lunch, get back to work, do work stuff. At three o'clock, it's coffee time. Scott, one of my coworkers, brings the gong. And that tells everybody it's time to get coffee. 15. There's a coffee gong. Yeah, there's a coffee gong. <laughs> it's a good time for a while there were those there did you see the video of that guy who pushed down like a whole box full of geese or ducks or whatever and it made that ridiculous noise yeah so that like ghastly noise yeah. like ah, yeah, yeah yeah so we someone bought some of those ducks and for a while the coffee <laughs> gong would be followed up by the sc- screaming of those ducks <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Yeah, so 3 o'clock coffee. We go to uh, the kitchen area if you're interested in coffee. Scott is really great at making lattes, so I'll make a latte for people who want one. Then back to work for a while. I usually am there until about 6, 6.30, and then I come home. Nice. And how long have you been at Slack now? More than a couple of months, but you've been there. You just started this year, yeah, right? Yeah, I just started this year. started in May. When I talked with Dio, I was telling him it felt like it's a fun place to work because I remember before... Slack came along, Stuart Butterfield and, and the team at Tiny Spec had this MMORPG Glitch. called Glitch. Glitch was, you remember Glitch? Oh, no, I used to play that all the time. I used to play that a lot too. Glitch was so much what fun. What was your name on Glitch? God, what was my name? I'll try to remember. I think it was Shadow Strike. Really? I was yeah. Friends. I was double. I was, oh, I remember. <laughs> I remember. Yes, Glitch was a lot of fun. And I like that they, they kind of. On, on Glitch? Huh? You remember my name on Glitch? I think so, That's yeah. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for yelling. Well, no, I remember that. I know that they've reused a lot of those assets and things. Like, for example, when I listened to the, the Slack Variety Pack uh-huh. podcast, like that whole opening yep. chimes and everything, it's like, that was the song when you opened Glitch. It was the same thing. Uh-huh. But yeah, it seems like there's just like a lot of, I mean, it is a place that you work, but it also seems like there's a sense of, I guess, fun and levity and joy for working there, it seems like. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, It's a really great place to work. There's a word that people use, and I've forgotten it right now, but yeah, it's really fun, and, you know, people just go there and try to be their best selves, like, do their best work of their lives and have fun doing it, just be good people doing good work. What first got you into programming? So, when I was a little kid... My mom got us a computer. She was in the Air Force and she did combat plans. And so she had to do some of her job on the computer and she taught me how to use it. And at some point, QBasic was involved and she showed me how to do that. I didn't do much with it, but that was my first foray into computing. When I was about 10, I went to this thing in the city. I, I lived in Alaska and my school was not the city. So I went to this thing in the city. They sent me to it. And I learned how to do HyperCard. And I was like, well, that's pretty fun. And that was like my second foray into computing. You know, in between there, I was playing Carmen San Diego and Oregon Trail, you know, standards. And But like when I was 
I want to say 14. It was either my freshman or sophomore year of high school. I started learning about rainbow books. Freaking, I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. like phone freaking and stuff. Yeah, yeah, so I learned a lot about freaking, and I was I was going down the path of learning about, you know, hacking or whatever. But thing happened at school that kind of scared the, the Jesus out of me, so I did not go down that path. But I was still interested in computing, and so the my senior year, high school, there was a zero-hour class offered, which was programming TI-83s in BASIC. And I took that. And then around then, at some point during then, I decided I wanted to major in computer science in college. And where did you go to school? University of Alaska for that? University of Miami for the first year. Okay. Okay. University of Alaska for the second year. And then I only did two years. I never got my bachelor's degree. That's a, I mean, were you in Miami when you were there? (laughs) I know. Okay. I was going to say, that's a big jump from Alaska to Miami. That's that's a big climate change, if anything else. From Alaska to Miami. But that was because I spent time in Miami when I was a little kid. Okay. And my parents were in the Air Force, like I said. And so one of our one of the places we lived was Homestead Air Force Base. And I always wanted to go back to Miami. And I was like, I'm going to go to the University of Miami. And I was a Hurricanes fan from the time I was 10, 9 or 10. And I, that was like where I was going to go to school. And so I went. It was the only college I applied to. In hindsight, not the best idea. Like, sure, had <laughs> I applied to some other school, I'd have gotten, you know, better offers. I ended up getting a, an academic scholarship to UM, but still, I probably would have got better stuff if I applied to other places. But, yeah, went there for a year, did the computer science major, and then didn't feel like that was the best place for me. I didn't know mm-hmm. welcoming uh, the CS program was a bunch of people who didn't think that I should be there or there. That's what their attitude said. Mm-hmm. And so I left and went back to Alaska and switched my major from CS because I was just like, I can't do this anymore and went into IT. And that I got um, my associate's degree and ended up getting a job at the university as a Windows domain admin. And that is how I got into the industry. Ah. And I know that you detailed a lot of not just what you just mentioned, but some of your other work history as well in this piece that you wrote on Medium, I think that was last November, mm-hmm. called The Other Side of Diversity. And that piece really, I think, like it made ripples and shockwaves throughout the industry. What was kind of your impetus behind publishing that? Because I feel like a lot of people, particularly a lot of people of color, mm-hmm. and a lot of people of color who are women in technology probably have similar types of experiences, but they never really put it out there like that. Oh, for sure. So the thing was, was that I was in therapy at that time. I just started therapy and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to, you know, I was writing a lot of what I was feeling. That's how I process my feelings to write. And so I had been writing a lot on my personal site, on my own blog. And I was like, well, this post I'm going to be, writing about Google. So I should probably put it somewhere that can handle the traffic because I know that there are people out there who like scan for things about Google. And I knew I was going to be, you know, talking about my experiences at Google, which may have been shocking for people. So I know there, there might've been a little bit of uptick in traffic and I didn't want that to affect my own site. So I was like, I'll just put it on medium. And I just like wrote what I was feeling. Like that was all that was. I was at an offsite at the time. Like it was at nighttime and I was just like, 
sitting in the bed, just like typing away, like doing my therapy stuff. And that, that like, there wasn't like a, I'm going to put it out there and like tell the industry what's what. It was just like, I'm going to write my feelings. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have to say, you're a really prolific writer. I mean, you have, aside from that piece, you've got a number of other just kind of really honest and, and vulnerable pieces that are on Medium. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, no problem. You know what? When I have a thing to say, like, there's, I have to, like, get it out. And so I don't, I, like, it, people say it's brave for me to be vulnerable. It's just like, I just have to say my truth. I can't, I can't not tell the truth. So that's what I do. What's been the reaction so far since that post has come? I mean, it's been a year. Like, what's changed since then? So people still share it and comment on it and, like, talk to me about it, which is wild to me. But a lot of the reaction I got was from women of color, like you mentioned, who have who have had experiences similar to mine, but who couldn't speak up or didn't feel comfortable speaking up or just didn't, weren't in a place where they could share I got so many like emails. People found me everywhere. Facebook, LinkedIn, my email, Twitter, like they just so many women of color were just like, This is exactly my experience. Like I went through all of this or some of this and they're like, Thank you for sharing this. I I thought I was the only one, you know, and it's like, no and hearing those things, like hearing that the problems I had were so widespread just kind of like lit a fire under me. Like I can't just like sit around and do nothing about this, you know? So I got really like, I got really aggressive, I guess, maybe assertive is probably a better word about talking about diversity in tech. And so the follow-up pieces, you know, everything I've written about diversity has just gotten really good feedback because I'm being honest. Like I'm, I say this like at Slack right now, when I first started there, Stuart, I was writing the thing about you know, moving to Slack and where I was going to be working after I left Google. And I reached out to Stuart because I screenshotted some things he said. And I was like, is this okay with you? Like, are you okay with me? Like, you know, putting what you said in my post. And he's like, number one, what you put makes you look great. And number two, I want you to feel comfortable saying anything you want to say. Like, I don't want you to feel like you need to censor yourself. And I was like, perfect. And that, you know, for me, like, Having come from Google where there's like cone of silence, like everybody has like standing gag order, like you don't talk. Knowing that Google is like that and many other places are like that, I was like, okay, I have like an okay from the CEO of my company to say what I feel. And I feel like it's a huge privilege. And so I want to make use of that and like tell the stories that other people can't. What do you know now that you didn't know when you published that piece? Well, I did. Like, what have you learned? I've learned that I'm not the only one. Like, like so many other women of color, I thought I was the only one who had experienced those things. I thought that I knew that diversity and tech and, you know, things were bad here and there. But I didn't know how widespread it was. So many, Maurice, I can't, I can't even tell you, like, how many women have reached out to me saying that they've gone through the exact same things. Like it's heartbreaking to know that so many people are experiencing such negativity in their workplace. Like I don't think that everybody's meant to love what they do, but to go to work and like feel excluded and feel like you're not wanted and be told, you know, horrible things about yourself. You know, you can't do this because of what you look like because of your skin color. Like that's, that's horrific. And I can't believe that it's happening all over the place. And so, yeah, 
it is just, yeah, that's what I learned. And that's what it, I can't believe that that's the case or couldn't, I can now, like I'm a little bit more jaded now, like, <laughs> but then I was just like, really, really? Yeah. But after I hear a story and I'm just like, wow, like I'm flabbergasted that the audacity of some people. Yeah, there was a I know you had a list that was in that piece where you sort of listed the ways that being a black woman in tech has affected you like personally. And that struck me so personally, because the last two places that I worked before I quit my job and started my business, one was for the state of Georgia. The other one was at AT AT&T. And I remember specifically at the state of Georgia, my boss had this problem with employees that had higher degrees than her. Oh, wow. So she had a bachelor's in journalism or whatever. And the only two black people in the department, it was me and there was a, a woman there. I was getting my master's and she had her master's. Mm-hmm. And so I remember one time she like brought us into a meeting and told us how intimidated she was by both of us. Crap. <laughs> and we're just kind of like, what is happening? <laughs> She's like, she's like, you know, I just feel like just so intimidated because, you know, the two of you talk and have these closed door meetings. And I'm like, because it's a meeting, right? and we close the door. Like, what are you talking about? And at one point in time, she even had engineering take my door off the hinges so I could not have closed door meetings. Wow. And I'm like, this is so ridiculous. And I remember going to HR about it. But that was when I soon learned that HR is not there to protect the employee. They're there to protect the company. That is, yes. That is true. And so Everyone. that, yeah, that fell on deaf ears. And even I remember when I worked at, uh, at AT&T, which harkens to something else that you talked about recently online mm-hmm. about pay inequality for salaries. Yeah. You sort of talked about how at Google, you ended up sort of finding out that, you know, employees were not kind of being paid along the same levels. And I found out that same thing mm-hmm. when I worked at AT&T and I ended up, you know, kind of bringing it up to my boss who she was like, yeah, I know. I, I just forgot. I'm sorry. Oh, wow. That is terrible. I'm so sorry. And, and I ended up getting my back pay because I, well, I wrote her up and I got my back pay and I used that back pay. I like quit my job the same day mm-hmm. that the check cleared and used that money to start my business. I'm so proud of you for that. Good. <laughs> that's like that's outstanding. That's great. So it seems like, I mean, a lot of the things that you you mentioned and talk about, I mean, people are listening. Like, you have so many people's attention. Does that kind of put any pressure on you in terms of what you talk about? So, kind of. I don't know that it's pressure, but there's there's sort of this, I feel like I have an obligation to continue talking about the tech industry and the issues surrounding diversity and inclusion. But at the same time, like, it's not... It's not pressure. It's just like, I just know that people expect me to talk about that. A little. Mm-hmm. If I were talking about the things that make me happy all the time, I'd be talking about genealogy nonstop. Like that is what I would be talking about. But I feel like, like I said, I have the privilege of being able to speak up. So I'm not going to waste that privilege. Like you said, like people pay attention to me, which is kind of weird. Like sometimes I'll look at my Twitter followers and like see VCs that you know, like, why, why, why are you paying attention to me? I mean, <laughs> it boggles me sometimes. Now, with the, the current role that you have at Slack, I think I saw you tweeted something a while ago that, like, now your responsibilities kind of deal a little bit with diversity issues. Right. So 20% of my time officially is 
for working on diversity stuff. I there wasn't like there wasn't an official name given it, but I just decided to call it diversity advocacy because that sounds best. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my manager in in a one on one was like, so I was talking to some people and you know we wondered if you'd be interested in like doing 20% of your time doing diversity stuff because you do it already. And so we may as well make it official. And I was like, yeah, cool. And that happened. What does that entail? I'm still sort of fleshing out the role. It mostly came to be because I, you know, I do this stuff already mm-hmm. and they wanted to acknowledge that, but the officially official stuff, like what the role is going to look like, we're, we're going to figure out probably in early 2016. Nowadays, there's like a lot of information out there as it relates to diversity in the tech field. I mean, there's studies, Mm -hmm. there's conferences, there's anecdotal evidence, of course, there's programs to help with the the pipeline. I'm using air quotes over here, the pipeline. Why do you think companies are still getting it wrong with respect to diversity when all this information is out there? Because it's hard. It's hard and it's scary. The so right now companies are getting really like comfortable with the idea of diversity being women, which is a little bit annoying mm-hmm. because while women, you know, are underrepresented in tech, the, that companies have sort of latched onto like women or diversity as code word as a code word for women excludes people of color. And I feel like race is sort of too scary for a lot of people. They feel uncomfortable talking about race. It's sort of a third rail. Like, you know, so they focus on women because it's easy. Like it's really, it's, it's gender is safe to talk about, but if you start talking about race, you start talking about systemic racism and inequality and injustice. And that gets people into places they don't like to think about. They don't like to think that, you know, the system is set up to benefit them. They don't like to think that there's some level of white supremacy built into the United States, you know, they don't, that, that's in our society in the United States. Like that's the thing that people don't like to think about. So, you know, it's easier and safer to just talk about women. So that's what they do. And that's a problem because that leaves people of color kind of out in the cold and our numbers are much lower than women's are. Like our representation is so tiny in the industry but we aren't getting any of the same, or not any, we are getting the same amount of attention as women are getting, which is a problem. And that's one way they're getting it wrong. There are several, several ways that companies are getting it wrong, you know, focusing on the pipeline, also air quotes over here, focusing on <laughs> the pipeline is a huge problem because a friend of mine online says the pipeline is leaky and full of acid. Like you keep shoveling people into the pipeline <laughs> And they keep falling out because once they get into the company, it's horrible because while you're hiring more women, occasionally hiring more people of color, you're not fixing the culture at your company that makes these people want to leave. Right. Like it's easier to look to the future than to fix the present. Well, yeah, that and also I'm a little bit cynical. I feel like it's easy like to say, oh, we're focusing on we're going to focus all our efforts on Girls Who Code, for example, like Girls Who Code is a great organization, but they mm-hmm. have so much money because companies keep shoveling money towards them. Because if you say that, oh, well, we are focusing on people, kids in grade school and what have you, or the problem is that kids aren't, or they're saying the problem is that, you know, people aren't getting interested as in computers and sciences as children, then you build in like, four to 12 years of like not 
having to show any progress because you can say, oh, well, we're still working on these kids coming up through school. So we're not going to see any sort of, you know, meaningful progress until those kids are there. And it's kind of kicking the can down the road. Yeah. Yeah. But now you also kind of give back a lot to the tech community through programs like that, like you mentor through Black Girls Code, through Hack the Hood. Do you feel like talking with the kids and, and kind of letting them know what the industry is like is, is helping? I kind of don't tell them what it's like, which is probably bad. But when I'm working with kids, I don't say, oh, well, the industry is going to be terrible for you because I hope that by the time they get there, it's not. I just want to encourage them and let them know that this is something that is there for them also. And it's not scary and it's not hard. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be great at math. Like all this, you know, all the tropes that people trot out about working in computers. Like I just, I want to like make sure that kids don't, aren't believing in those things. What have the kids taught you? (laughs) Can I quote Whitney Houston? That they are the future. Um, (laughs) You know, this one Black Girls Code event I went to, the, the girls are making iPhone apps. And let me tell you, those kids are freaking just smart and full of ideas. And like any, like, I, I guarantee you, like any number of those kids, at least 10 to 20% of those girls are going to like turn the industry on its ear when they become teenagers. Like they're going to be those whiz kid teenagers with startups that are selling for millions and millions of dollars while they're still in high school. Those kids are so good. And it's just, it, they've taught me to be less depressed about the industry, I guess, because they, they are going to change it or we're going to change it. And they're going to like dominate it, I think, which makes me happy. Nice. Yeah. That's good to know. I mean, you know, and it's, it's good because I mean, yeah, we're sort of talking about the pipeline and how that might kick the can down the road, but you know, these types of programs when we were kids didn't really exist. We had whatever kind of home computing system, if you had that, yeah. to help out. And even then, you know, back then when you get a computer, it came with nothing, <laughs> yeah. no software or anything. You had to program the computer. You had to tell it what to do. Right. Now, there was no app store or, or, you know, anything like that. Like the things that we sort of hem and haw about, like software that's already pre-installed and things like that. I remember I had a... Uh, a laser 50 from VTech. Mm-hmm. And it was just this little, like, I wouldn't say a laptop, but it was about the size of say like a Whitman sampler candy box. It had a one line screen and you turned it on and it was just a blinking prompt. Yep, That was it. <laughs> you had to teach it what to do and how to program and things like that. So the fact that I think these programs are around just sort of instills that sense of discovery mm-hmm. that I feel modern computing has kind of taken away in a bit because yep. now you get a laptop you can just get online and do whatever it's it's but not the same, that same type of experience it's a great thing that you know they can get a laptop and get online and do whatever because we're teaching them to be and i i don't like this phrase i'm gonna use it digital natives like they're feeling okay, comfortable okay. with computing and they're okay with it and they're not you know they're not afraid to start poking around because they're not afraid of the computer like you know there are some people when in our generation, I'm, I'm going to assume that we're in the same generation. <laughs> we're just super afraid of computers. Like they didn't understand it. They didn't get it. They didn't want to work with them because like they were foreign to them. And that these kids are like becoming so comfortable with computers is going to be so beneficial for them later on when it's time for them to work with the computers. Like I remember uh, I was doing support for a while. Like people were like, I don't know how to open Word. And it's like, whoa. You're the same age as me, and you don't know how to open Word? But (laughs) 
so you hinted about this earlier, and I did kind of want to ask about, you know, kind of your obsessions and things that you really like. And of course, one of them is genealogy. That's really kind of how I first learned about you and your work, because you were talking about your experiences with 23andMe and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. How has the genealogy, are you still kind of doing research and things like that with it? I am. I do some genealogy at least once a week. Wow. Yeah, I've been doing it pretty steadily with a few breaks since I was, um, since 2004, so over a decade. Over a decade, wow. What first got you into it, just wanting to find out more about your family? In 2004, my grandfather got really sick, and Mm -hmm. he passed away, and I realized then that I didn't know anything about his side of the family. I didn't know, like when it's time to go to his funeral, I didn't know who anybody was. And I was oh, wow. that's wild. Like, I don't know who my family is. And I was like, I'm going to do my family tree so I can figure this out. And it just, it became sort of like an obsession almost because there are so many questions to be answered. It's a giant puzzle. Like, who's, mm-hmm. whose father is that? And, you know, well, you know, how many kids did they have? And which one of these people is my uncle? And it just, yeah, it, as I answered more questions, it created like five more questions. And it's been going on and on since then. I remember you getting the 23andMe test because that's what inspired me to end up getting a 23andMe test. Like, yeah, like finding out like what's my what's my background? Because I mean, I'm I'm black, but like I wanted to know what that breakdown really looked like. And I remember you you doing your test and kind of finding that out. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it just to see kind of what it is. And I remember doing it and I showed it to my mom. Mm -hmm. And because I, I think it said that I was 85% sub-Saharan African, which I think is pretty high. And then like about 10 or 11% that was European. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the part she was the most, she was like the most surprised about. She was like, you probably get that from your dad. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like, that's not from me. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I thought, I always thought that, you know, I have a similar breakdown. I think I have 80 80 to 85% Sub-Saharan African and 15% or some such European. I don't remember the exact numbers. But I always thought that that mostly came from my mom's side until Mm -hmm. I had my dad do his 23andMe test. And also he had similar numbers. And it's like there was so much that went on during slavery that it's hard to say, you know, oh, well, it came from this side or the other because there were so many, you know, undocumented pregnancies and children that came from you know, I want to say relationships because that's putting that's probably giving it a higher name than yeah. but you know couplings between masters and slaves put it that way there we go yeah <laughs> <laughs> so there are so many of those that it's just it, you know it's hard to say where it came from and that's sort of a thing that I want to focus on as I continue my research I feel like we can sort of solve those puzzles if people continue to take 23andMe tests, continued, you know, if people did even just cursory basic, you know, family trees, we could sort of figure out who is related to who and, and sort of start solving or putting together the pieces of like where families got broken up in the past. Like that's a huge thing to me. I, I feel like we have the technology and also the data that just needs to be digitized 
to sort of put together the world's family tree. Like the data is out there. We can write the algorithms. It's just a matter of doing it. Uh, but I think that a lot of people, especially in tech, aren't super interested in that because tech is a very forward looking and paying attention to what happened in the past is not of interest to many people. And B, tech is largely white. So they mostly all know where they come from already. And so it's not, there are no puzzles there to be solved for them. There are no questions there to be answered. But I feel like if we can get some people interested in that, we could solve that for everybody. I remember when 23andMe did, they had this program, I think it was called Roots to the Future. Roots into the Future, yeah. Yeah, where they sent out a bunch of tests. Uh, to black people. Yeah, to black people. So they could kind of build up their own database because I think back then they didn't really have a lot. So <laughs> you you took the test and there were a lot of blanks and question marks like, yeah, we don't really know about Native American ancestry because we don't have that. And we really don't have an idea. I remember t- I took a second DNA test through Ancestry, mm-hmm. Ancestry DNA. And then that let me know the countries. Mm-hmm. Of like the sub-Saharan African part. So it, the majority was Benin and Togo, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting because they're both French-speaking countries. My mom speaks French. I speak French. Like we learned it like going through school. And I wondered if I had like this proclivity towards it. <laughs> Maybe I do because that's that's apparently where I'm descended from. I want to do the African ancestry, but that's... That, that ancestry cheap. is not going to give you any better or more thorough information than the Ancestry or 23andMe to be. Really? You're, you're pretty covered with the Ancestry of 23andMe right now. Really? That is so good to know. Yeah. Because I was really going to put like $300 down and get a test. So that's so yeah. good don't, to don't know. And for anybody <laughs> listening to this, try to decide, you know, which test to get. Go for Ancestry. Best thing for your book. Especially if you don't really care about the health reports. Because 23andMe just got the FDA approval to put their health reports back. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But they also like jacked the price up to two hundred dollars. Oh, yeah. So wow. you can Ancestry is ninety nine dollars, and they're always having sales. Um, I think during Black Friday, Cyber Weekend, or whatever, it was on sale for sixty nine dollars. So just like wait around until Ancestry has a sale, and you can cop a DNA test for seventy bucks. And yeah, that's that's the best way to go. That is so good to know. I'm so glad you told me that because <laughs> I was really thinking about it because I wanted to know like the tribe and where specifically to see if that would kind of just give some more insight, you know, a whole bunch of guesswork on their part. They honestly really don't know. Wow. Yeah. Like that's, that's a lot of guesswork and I would not spend the money on it if I were you. Okay. I'm not. That is so good to know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So with a lot of the work that you do as it relates to your programming work and, of course, diversity work, and you do a lot of kind of public, very emotional writing and stuff, what do you do for self-care? Like what helps you kind of get back to your center? Uh, I like to read a lot. Um, it varies. I have like the genealogy kind of puts me back to my center. Like it's very cathartic for me, I guess, because I, I, I love to solve puzzles. Like that's what I have loved to do since I was a little kid. And not like, you know, jigsaw puzzles. I mean, like, logic puzzles. So this is how my brain works. Like, it makes me happy to solve logic puzzles. So doing genealogy is just like a giant logic puzzle. So it makes me, calms me. It helps me, you know, relax. Also, reading is one of my favorite things to do. I haven't been doing a lot lately because I've had so much stuff to do. And here and there, photography. That one I have not done a lot at all in the past, which makes me sad because I miss taking pictures. 
I need to catch up on my pocket queue over the holidays. I'm pretty sure I've got at least 5,000 entries. I just need to wow. spend some time with it. Grace. Yeah. Uh, are you going to force yourself <laughs> to reading all that? Well, I mean, not at once. I mean, I'll, I'll, Ever? I'll get to it. Like, I'll, I've done a really good job of tagging stuff. Mm-hmm. So if I want to read everything I've got in there on diversity or everything about JavaScript or whatever, I can pull that and read in that way. There's also this iPad. Well, it's an iPad. It's an iPhone app, too. That's called Read Time. I think that's what it's called. Actually, I'm looking at my iPad now. I can tell you it is called, yeah, Read Time. And it essentially is a timer that hooks up to your pocket account. Mm-hmm. So you can set the timer from anywhere from one minute to 60 minutes. Oh, no, one minute to 30 minutes. I'm sorry. And it will pull articles just for that time. So as soon as you finish reading one and you mark it as read, it pulls another one. Okay. And so the pieces that it's pulling should be able to be read in the amount of time that you've set. Interesting. I'm installing pocket now because you're the, I don't know, umpteenth person who has told me to install it. And I always forget. So I'm going to do it now. So, I mean, because I'll always see something and then say, oh, that's that'll be really interesting. Save it for later. What? Oh, that'll be interesting. Save it for later. Or where do you, say what? Where do you normally get your articles? Is there a place that you read most? Oh, that's a good question. I have a lot of different. I mean, I'm on I have Dig Reader since Google Reader went to that pasture in the sky. <laughs> so I have a ton of, <laughs> of different feeds from a number of different places. I'm trying to think anywhere in particular. Metafilter, Boing Boing are usually fairly good link aggregators that have a, you know, different stuff on mm-hmm. it. Oh, I'm trying to think where else. Usually Metafilter. Okay. Metafilter has a really good, I mean, Metafilter has been around like forever, yeah. but it has a really good random sampling of things because Boing Boing stuff tends to go, I mean, they do have political stuff, but it tends to also kind of go towards a more weird stuff. But Metafilter, I've seen everything from like pop culture to current events to political stuff to science to a little bit of everything. Do you want to hear so, a fun thing? Hmm? You want to hear a fun thing about Metafilter? Yeah, sure. Uh, the guy who created Metafilter works at Slack. Really? Matt Howie. Matt Howie, yeah. Yeah. Look at that. What a small world. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so let's kind of switch gears a little bit here. I know that you you spoke before about mentoring and things like that. Who are some of the people that have mentored you, that have helped you out throughout your journey as a programmer? Not many. So the thing about mentorship uh, is that people like to mentor people who look like them. Ah. It's like, it's not so much look like. Look is is sort of minimizing some stuff. People like to mentor people who remind them of themselves, right? So if I am a white dude who likes whatever music that this other white dude likes, like that guy will want to mentor me. I don't look like or remind anybody or in tech of themselves. So I haven't had many mentors. I've had, I've asked for help several times. There was a time when I was learning how to write Python, that I was just like asking everybody and their mom for help. And there was so much like, Oh, well just, grab a project and do it. And that's how you learn. And it's like, that's not helping me at all. Yeah. That's not good advice. And it got really frustrating. So I haven't had many mentors programming wise, people who have supported me and, and you know, who I consider advisors are on other stuff. Definitely like Kim Bryant, who runs the black girls code. I talked to Julie Horvath a lot about stuff that's going on in the industry. There's a whole group on Facebook of people, of women of color in Silicon Valley. And I talk to them when I have questions about things. 
or women of color in tech in Silicon Valley, rather. And so I'll post there if I have, you know, things I need to ask about or talk about, that sort of thing. But like tech mentorship, learning, you know, programming stuff, not many mentors at all, which, you know, is a problem. Do you think your path would have been different if you had that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Having a mentor is sort of, sort of makes a person feel, or it would have made me feel, I can't speak for everybody. It would have made me feel more comfortable in tech. It would have made me feel like, uh, with a mentor usually comes a lot of encouragement, right? Mm -hmm. And that encouragement is crucial. Like it's so important, especially as a woman of color in tech, because everything in tech is telling you that you don't belong, that you're not supposed to be here. So having someone there who's like, yeah, you do belong here. You can do this. It's not hard. You're smart enough. You're good enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. Right. Very Stuart Smalley. Yeah. <laughs> like if you have that voice, that someone telling you that, it makes things so much easier. You start to believe in yourself also. So yeah, I think my path would have been different in that way. Do you think that it's different now probably for people that are coming up in the industry because there's so many different groups out there that are helping well, really helping children, it feels like. Yeah, they're helping children. So things for children are definitely out there. I don't know that there's still a lot of mentorship for women of color in the industry. Like I said before, like people are, there aren't very many of us to begin with, especially doing engineering roles and finding the ones that are out there is pretty difficult. Like, like some people luck into that Facebook group, like it's not advertised anywhere and then you can find someone. But like for girls in college or young ladies in college who are just coming up. Like I, I'm not sure that all of them are going to have the right mentorship. There are some who are very active on Twitter, Kaya, Thomas, mm-hmm. uh, Della, uh, her name's Del Spells on Twitter. Like those two are the first ones to come to my head, but there are many who are in college who are coming up right now on Twitter and they, they have the opportunity to get mentorship because they are connecting with people. But you know, not everybody works in that way. Not everybody wants to, you know, be on Twitter and trying to like talk to people, whatever, and networking, whatever. And those young ladies, I don't know that they're going to get the level of mentorship that they need. What do you think can help change that? Because I wonder if, and this is something that I know is, is really, I feel endemic in the design industry is that there is a lack of giving back from current professionals. Like if they do give back, it'll be, you know, a conference talk. Or something like that, but not really anything in in the realm of of mentorship, either formal or informal. It's sort of like, well, I figured it out, so now you have to figure it out, and you have the whole web out there, so good luck. Right. It's sort of a hazing sort of thing, right? Like that. that. <laughs> oh God, that's a that's a yeah. That's an interesting way to put it's it. It's sort of hazing, like oh, you can go out there and figure it out on your own, and then you can come up and be, you know, you 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 belong here if you can go figure it out. And it's like it's it doesn't need to be that way, like. You can help people. And I feel like if people could get over there, I'm only one, I only want to mentor people who remind me of me stuff. Like, that would be really great. What keeps you motivated? Motivated to do what? To, get- to continue. Honestly, right now, Slack keeps me motivated because I am really passionate about Slack, the company, and also the technology. Like, I love Slack. I love using it. But Slack, the company, I'm really passionate about seeing that company succeed because I feel like there's this, 
there's a culture of cargo culting in the Valley where if a company does well, everybody wants to believe that they just need to copy that company and then they'll do well. So Slack being focused on diversity and inclusion and baking that into the culture at such an early stage, you know, with Stuart and many other leaders of the company being, you know, so forward on social justice. I feel like if Slack succeeds, then other companies will try to emulate Slack. And along with that will come, you know, focus on diversity and inclusion and being vocal about social justice from leadership. So that keeps me motivated for working at Slack. But I've told many people before, like, I feel like after Slack, I don't know that I would stay in tech. I don't think it will get better. Like, I don't think there's a place that is better than Slack in tech for me to go to. And so, you know, whatever happens with Slack, if I end up leaving Slack at some point for whatever reason, I don't know that I'll stay. (laughs) I want to go off somewhere and do genealogy full time. Genealogy full time doesn't sound bad. No, it doesn't. Like, if I could just get, (laughs) here's my dream. Ready? I want to get an RV. And just okay. drive up and down the East Coast, like going to all the places where my family is from on the East Coast. And in my RV, I'd have some sort of digitization thing where I would just go to like the little courthouses, the county courthouses or whatever, and just like scan all the stuff that they have that needs to be digitized. And that's what I want to do. Like I have an RV and then an 18-wheeler that comes behind me maybe if I'm super rich and can afford that. And in the 18-wheeler, have a bunch of scanners and just like at higher contract people or like in people in the area to just like scan all the stuff and digitize everything. That that is what I would do if I had my druthers. That's not a bad idea. I like that. That's kind of dope. I like that. (laughs) That's really nice. That's the dream. So, and this, I mean, I know that a lot of kind of what you've mentioned sort of has a bit of a cynical take on the industry, which I think is okay. I think that's fine. I'm not, I'm not deriding that at all, but what advice would you give to someone that is just starting out that wants to kind of be where you are? Don't let people scare you away. Don't let people push you out. Don't let anybody make you feel like you don't belong because they will try that and people will try you and say, oh, well, you know, you're only here because of affirmative action or you only are here because someone thought you or someone wanted to sleep with you or something like people will try you and just don't don't let it get to you. Take care of yourself. Uh, be very, very, very focused on self-care and surround yourself outside of work with people who love you and who you can love also. Because that having those connections, having that support system to lean on when stuff is really crappy at work is so important. Because it's not, you know, tech, the tech industry is not going to get better anytime soon. And so people coming into it now just need to have like a strong support system so they can get through it. Now, I know that you've worked in a lot of different just geographic locales. And of course, with that, there's been different demographic makeups. You've worked in Alaska. You've worked here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And you're out in in the Valley now. Do you feel a lot of what you've mentioned is just endemic to Silicon Valley? Or is that just throughout the industry? Do you mean like the diversity makeups of companies or like the different attitudes or well yeah like the, the attitudes mostly because i mean with with demographics it, it will vary because i mean you you work in atlanta you know mm-hmm. you is very few places you'll go where there's not somebody black in tech yeah. working here yeah, that's true like if there's a company where it's no black people working in tech that is by design they did that on purpose <laughs> yeah it's, yeah in atlanta for sure 
I want to say that the attitudes are not endemic to the valley, but valley is such an echo chamber that it's sort of, they sort of build on themselves. Like those attitudes sort of snowball, right. And, and become so big and so overwhelming that they seem like they're everywhere, but no, they're not endemic just to Silicon Valley. They just are bigger here. More people feel like they feel comfortable speaking their prejudices and biases and sharing those in Silicon Valley, but definitely not just endemic to Silicon Valley, for sure. It's, I mean, uh, the problems that we're dealing with now are the result of many, many years of systemic injustice. And it's interesting, a lot of people in Silicon Valley seem to have the idea that they are immune to those things when nothing can be further from the case. I think a big part of fixing inequity in tech is people recognizing that, you know, systemic injustice and systemic bias helped a lot of the people who are in tech get here and that, you know, tech isn't immune from it. When you look back at everything that you've done Mm -hmm. leading up to the work that you're doing at Slack right now, do you feel like this is kind of where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I wanted to be a sysadmin. And so kind of, yeah, I mean, being a build and release engineer is not, not so much being a sysadmin, but it's close enough. Yeah, not exactly where I want to be, but I'm happy with where I am. Okay, well, let's kind of end things off on a happier note. I hope people that are listening haven't like ch- checked out from this or anything. <laughs> oh my but God, it's so horrible. I don't want to listen. <laughs> what excites you about the industry right now? I'm excited to see people doing work on problems that aren't just Silicon Valley problems, right? Like I'm excited to see Tiffany Bell doing the Detroit Water Project. Tiffany and Christy are doing such amazing work with that. I'm excited to see people of color like succeeding and winning, you know, Maven and Bevel and and Blavity and, you know, people of color like succeeding and like owning their space in tech and like making people realize that, you know, black people exist too and we have money too and we are a community that needs to be served i'm super excited about that i'm excited to see where self-driving cars go i'm really stoked about that because people don't know how to drive (laughs) and (laughs) i just really would like for the computers to drive please so people will stop driving so that is the thing i'm excited about also so in the next five years where do you you see yourself you see yourself being in that RV, what do you think? There is no telling. Like five years ago, I could not have told you I'd be where I am right now. So like saying where I'm going to be in the next five years would be a complete and utter lie. Uh, wherever I am, I hope I'm happy. I hear you. Amen to that. Well, Erica, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and, and follow your journey online? I am on uh, Twitter. My handle there is Erica Joy, uh, E-R-I-C-A-J-O-Y. I'm also, I also have a website, ericabaker.com and that will link you to my medium where I write most of the time and I'm on various Slack teams so if you run into me there say hello I'm Erica Joy pretty much everywhere sounds good well Erica thank you again so much for for taking time out to speak with me today I mean I've been a fan of you and your work for so long thank you that this is I mean this is uh, like one of my like, I have a wish list of people that I want to have on the show, right? And, you know, 
it, I'm still going through it. I like to think now that I've hit 100 episodes, that'll make it easier. Yeah. That I can just reach out to people and be like, yeah, I've done 100 plus episodes. So you want to come on the show? Yeah. Because when I first started, it would be like, yeah, you know, I don't know who you are. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if I want to be on this thing that you're doing. Right. But, but you're one of the people that I wanted to really have on here and talk to from day one. And so I'm just so. I'm so glad honor to to talk with you and and you know the work that you're doing at slack is super important the writing that you're doing is really i think changing hearts and minds or at the very least opening some eyes so people can see exactly what's going on out there so thank you for just being someone that is a catalyst for change in this industry oh, thank you so much i really appreciate that and thank you so much for having me on the show this was such a great conversation thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Erica Joy and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Erica and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SPREADLOVE at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Happy holidays. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.